Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. We couldn't have calendars there because they did not want us to count down days. And it, it didn't matter. You didn't want to because there's this terrible like soul-sucking feeling thinking like my friends are outside these walls having good times without me. Like my family's right. having good times with me, like all the things that you're missing, you can't stop thinking about them. So you have to just, I learned, let it go. You have to like mentally say, my friends forget about me. They'll completely forget about me. I have to forget about them. And, and the only, that's the only way you're going to stay sane if you're going to be there for more than a year is you just have to let go of counting the days. You have to let go of your friends, whatever's waiting for you, assume that doesn't exist and just try to make life in that place, not suck. That's the best thing you can do. You gotta stop thinking about everything outside or else you will lose your mind. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. All right, guys, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Hannah on the show with me today. Hannah, can you just introduce yourself to my listeners and let them know just a little bit about you? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Hannah Kay. I am 27 years old from California, and today I'm sharing my story with you from the troubled teen industry. I was in a facility called Lighthouse Christian Academy for four years cumulatively between the ages of 13 and 18 years old. So I pretty much spent uh, my entire childhood in this facility. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to you a lot about that. But I'm, I'm curious, prior to 13, your kind of upbringing and what kind of ended up with you going here? Because I've talked to people who their parents were non-Christian, but they sent them to just a home that was recommended and it ended up being one of these homes. Were you a part of the Independent Baptist movement growing up? Or was it something where your parents weren't religious? What was the background there? My family it has always been Christian. My parents consider themselves Berean Christian, which is like a very lesser known denomination, which basically just means they go by the Bible, um, essentially. Um, it's very similar to being Baptist. It, it is conservative, but definitely not as conservative as Lighthouse was. Um, Lighthouse, of course, being the independent fundamental Baptist institution. 
So my family was Christian. We did the dress thing. We wore no pants for the longest time until um, we actually moved to California when I was like five or six years old. We're actually from Canada. And I think when we came to California, the dress code and some of the stricter, more conservative Christian tendencies fell away. What what part of California were you in? Um, my parents are from Lake Forest, California. So it's South uh, Orange County. I feel like I should know where that is. I grew up near like Riverside. So in it's like we're it's by Laguna Beach. Like if you know where Laguna Beach is. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love Laguna Beach. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's yeah. if I move back to California, that would be where I'd want to be for sure. So, yeah, no, it's super super nice. Awesome. Really cool area. Awesome. So tell me just a little bit about, obviously you talked about your religious side, but was your childhood pretty normal? Did you have a a good family relationship up till you were about 13 or was it something where it felt like there was a little bit of a a struggle, like getting along internally inside the family? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I always tell people because people are quick to um, judge my parents for Mm. sending me to this facility. And I always tell people I was by by every count a a, um, out of control teenager. I was a troubled teen, so to speak, in terms of my behavior from pretty much my entire adolescence into my preteen years. I think there might have been like a, a, there might have been like a chemical imbalance or something with me when I was a child, because my family tends to recount me being pretty like full of rage and unexplained like uh, anger. So there might've been like a chemical imbalance that caused me at least initially to be pretty out of control. But by my preteen years, it, it was really bad. I was getting okay. kicked out of school after school. I could not stop getting kicked out of schools and I'm doing drugs, sleeping around, all that fun. I was hitchhiking, self-harm, yeah. everything you can possibly think of that would scare the crap out of your parents. I was doing yeah. stuff. People are quick to judge my parents, but my parents really felt that they were out of options and were not educated on the other options that actually are available outside of um, these facilities or these religious institutions that try to take care of children um, in a very unaccredited, unscientific manner. But for my parents, when it came to finally um, choosing a place for me to go, when they really decided we can't handle her anymore, the most important thing for them was to find um, a place that could give me boundaries, that could keep me safe, so to speak, and a place that was Christian. Yeah. So... Those were the two major parts of them choosing what what ended up to be an absolute terror for me, but but choosing Lighthouse. Sure. Yeah, no, I definitely want to get back to that and and talk about the parents' perspective and like and dealing with this. And it is there's definitely some parents who just want to offload their kids and take them to facilities like this. And there's also parents who do feel truly like that's the only option and I feel for them in that instance like what do you do and so when they broke this news to you when they talked about taking to this school what was your reaction and did you feel it was necessary did you feel at all like you were out of control or did you just feel like I'm just trying to live my life and do my own thing when I was taken to Lighthouse there was no conversation I was kidnapped in the middle Mm. of the night so there was no conversation about how I felt. I'm sure if you would have asked me at the time, I would have said something to the effect of, I'm not that bad. Because as a kid, I I would just go hard or go home type deal. I wouldn't, I think I never had more than one detention in my whole childhood, but I got, got expelled from three schools and probably suspended a couple of times. So anytime I got in trouble, it was always just this insane, like, why would you do that moment? 
having a video of me taking drugs or threatening a kid with a knife or something like crazy. Like, why did you do that? And most of the time I was just careless or thoughtless. Anyway, I digress. I would have probably told you as a kid that I wasn't as bad as other kids because I wasn't constantly like causing trouble in class. I would just do one-off crazy stupid things. I've talked to a couple people. I don't think I've talked to anybody. Obviously I know this happens, but I haven't talked to anybody who's actually been removed from their home and then taken to one of these homes, which I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people who are familiar with this, but for those who aren't like a lot of these homes, I, I don't think so much now I don't hear it as much, but I know, actually, no, that's not true because I know I just saw recently a clip where they, I think it was through Dr. Phil, they had done that kind of method with somebody. But yeah, can you talk about that a little bit and just like what that experience was? Absolutely. So the really interesting thing, if you're just now learning about the troubled teen industry, um, I'll say this before I get into the kidnapping bit. Religious institutions, are they're almost always independent, fundamental, extremist Baptists. They're just one part of many different types of programs that come under the umbrella of the troubled teen industries. There are other like reform schools, behavior programs with actual science and, and therapy and medication behind them, but we'll get to the differences later. But there's a bunch of them under that umbrella and religious institutions almost always tell your parents to get you a, an escort or a third party service. And, and the reason that this is, these religious institutions tend to operate in very specific states because some states, um, like the state of Florida, where Lighthouse was located, religious institutions are exempt from like getting a state license. So they are overruled by an organization called FACA, which is the Florida Association of Christian Child Care. And FACA is responsible to govern, essentially, these religious institutions, these homes for children. They don't, but they're responsible right. for it. So anyways, parents oftentimes have to send their kids across state lines to these states that can treat children the way that we were treated to give us that kind of psychotic structure and, and actual abuse, but from our parents' oversight structure that they think we need. So they'll tell your parents to get this escort service. Um, and it's a third-party service. They don't work for the school. They're always just a third right. party. And they will come to your home after your parents pay them. I think it's about $3,000 for them to do this. I've seen it, two or $3,000. And they will come at an odd hour of the night, a surprising hour. For me, I want to say it was like 3 a.m., 2 or 3 a.m., very common hour. Most survivors of the troubled teen industry will tell you they got picked up about this time. Um, And it's usually two individuals will come. They're usually very large people. Um, And they'll just walk into your room, flip the light on, and tell you to get up and not tell you at all what's happening. It's it's so confusing. I can't express. When people hear me tell this story, they'll always ask me like all these questions. And I'm like, at that moment, had no idea. I have no answers for you. Like it's a very confusing process when people walk into your room and you see your parents standing there and you're like, they're letting this happen. So what's happening? And you just have no idea what's going on. They walk into your room at two or 3 a.m. They'll tell you to get up um, and you'll be startled, but they'll be rude almost. They're, they're trying to scare you a little bit so that you don't fight them. So yeah. it's a dramatic process. They're, they're, they're very rude. And they'll tell you to put some clothes on. In my case, my they handed me my own clothes. So I knew that my mother had given them uh, my clothes preemptively to end to me. And and it was odd to me that they had to pick out my clothes for me because I I was trying to piece together, where am I going that somebody else needs to pick out my clothes? And they told me, you can go the easy way or the hard way. And this is becoming like a very well-known motto, thanks to Paris Hilton in her new documentary, This is Paris. She shares her experience of being kidnapped and they say the exact same thing to her. Two individuals come in, middle of the night, easy way or hard way. 
it's pretty laugh because there is no easy way to being kidnapped. It's all terrible. But in my case, I told them, okay, like I'll do whatever you want. I'm I, at the time I was probably 80 pounds soaking wet. I'm five foot two. Um, I'm not fighting these people. It's just not going to happen. So I put the clothes on. You had to get dressed in front of them. They would not let you out of their sight for a second once they entered your room. And I didn't see my parents at all at this point. Uh, my dad had flipped the light on when they came in and then he left. And so I didn't see them at all. And the only time I saw my parents before I left the house that day was when I was downstairs, got to the bottom of the stairs. My father came by and told me to put my shoes on um, very sternly and weirdly because I wasn't being, I wasn't fighting anybody at this point. So I was, remember being like, why are you speaking so sternly to me? And I put my shoes on and I saw my mother walk by the kitchen crying but she didn't look at me or, or come towards me or anything. And it was very strange. Like clearly she felt she could not con contact me. And that's because these um, institutions, these religious homes, they tell your parents not to engage you at all because we, the children are so manipulative and evil and sinful that we are going to go and um, try to manipulate us or try to manipulate them, excuse me, into letting us stay. So she was not talking to me because she had been told not to talk to me. Then these people take you out of the house. They put you in the back of like an unmarked. It almost seems like a police car because they got like the cage. They got all the computers up in the front. And it looks like, for me, I think it was like a Camaro. It was like a Camaro. Mm. I got in there and I don't remember what happened. I, it's honestly such a blur because remember, I was 13 years old. I was about to turn 14, but I was like 13 years old. And I just remember they drove around for what seemed like hours until we got to an airport. And then I ended up getting on two planes. One one car ride later, I was finally in Jay, Florida, after a long day of traveling. And and they stayed with you on the plane, obviously, fly you back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, so they take you to the airport. They put you on the plane. For me, for a lot of these girls, they get various things put on them. So some girls get like a boot. They'll put like this big um, boot, like what you would put on if you had a broken leg. They'll put that on your leg so that you can't run away as easily. Sometimes they'll handcuff you. They threaten me with handcuffs, but I think that they got the message that I wasn't going to fight them. Um, so they did not handcuff me. But girls get handcuffed. They get booted. Some girls even get like a belt put around their waist so that mm. if they were a flight risk or they ran, you could just grab them real quick. So even those things in themselves are very humiliating and traumatizing. And this uh, is this might be a dumb question, but this is all legal for them to do because they have your parents' permission. Absolutely. I think that some girls have tried to tell TSA agents at airports or other people, like, help them, like, I'm being kidnapped. But I think they actually have a document signed by your parents or whatever. It might slow them down, but ultimately it would just cause more drama for the girl. It, yeah. it, at best, she doesn't know that at the time, but it, at best it's going to slow them down an hour while they explain to TSA that they're not really kidnapping you. Tell me a little bit just like arriving at the home, because I know beforehand you were saying that they were definitely more extreme than the environment that you were used to. Tell me just about like first experiences, like you're sitting on the plane, you're thinking through what's going on. So when you actually roll up to this facility, what's going through your mind? At this point, I still have no idea what's going on. I think right. maybe I'm going to a rehab. I truly have no idea where I'm being sent. And it's strange that the mentality at that point in my life was, I can't ask because no one will help me. Like before I even got there, I was in that state of mind where I'm like, no one is going to believe me. No one's going to help me. No one owes me any an explanation because I right. never once asked the whole day that they're traveling. 
these random strangers, I don't even know their names, putting me on planes, driving me. I never once asked where I was going. I finally got there and we pull up to this property. And, and this is something in religious programs. It's something with churches too. Sometimes evil people can hide behind a very pretty landscape or, or a pretty picture. And the facility itself, Lighthouse, beautiful facility, truly beautiful facility, lush green grass. Has beautiful driveway leading up to the house, volleyball court, sparkling blue pool, a very nice old like Victorian home, just a really nice property. And so when I pulled up to it, I wasn't intimidated at all. I thought, okay, I'm going to a nice rehab. This is a nice rehab and that's where I'm at. And, and then when the car pulled up, some of the staff members came out and I didn't notice this at the time, but they were wearing very long skirts, very long skirts and, and dress attire. And I thought, okay interesting and they take me inside they they do a little key unlock on the door outside which was the first time i saw that they actually had every door in this place was magnetized locked so that there is no getting out of this place so they got me inside there and while i walked into what was a revival they had a preacher there by the name of brother cook i believe and he was preaching a message to the girls and i thought okay now um, I'm in a church. This is strange. And I remember looking around and looking at all their clothes and their clothes were very strange. They were wearing like colored shirts and stuff that didn't really match and stuff that didn't really fit. And I thought it was mm. very strange. And the next thing I knew after that service was over was I was being taken back for what they call a new girl shower, which is when they bring you in, they, they strip search you, they have you do all kinds of acrobats while you're uh, naked and then they put you in a shower. And while you're in the shower, they actually take away everything that you came in with. So whatever you had in the stall, your clothes, you know, your necklaces or your personal, anything that you happen to, to take with you on the plane, it's gone. They've taken it from you while you're in your shower so that you couldn't fight them on it, essentially. And then when you come out, they've put a skirt in the stall for you and um, a yellow t-shirt. And that's what you're supposed to be wearing. I think in my instance, I was going straight to bed. So they probably gave me my pajamas first. But most girls would get the yellow t-shirt and the skirt at that point. But yeah, that, that's basically day one. You get taken across the country. You have no idea what this is. I still at this point have no idea what this is because no one will talk to you. Lighthouse is not a facility where girls are allowed to speak freely to each other. There's a lot of rules governing talking. But basically, at, at best case scenario... There are two hours a day in which you might be able to talk to another individual if they're at a certain rank and if you have somebody listening to your conversation and if it's about approved topics. So very slim chance of having a real conversation or, or making a friend, which was banned essentially from there. But yeah, that was day one, basically. How many other people were there? How many students were there when you got there? I would say there was probably... 30 or 40. The time I was there, there was probably no more than 60 and no less than 20 in the time okay. that I was there, but it, it varied pretty regularly. And it did it fluctuate pretty often? Or yeah, was it? I mean, girls were always coming in and girls were always leaving. It, it would fluctuate pretty good. And what determined when someone was ready to leave? Was there a certain time period for the school where, you know, oh, you have this much time here and then that's the end? Was it semester based? Like, how did it work? You would think that it would be time-based. So the program, it's presented to your parents as it's a year program. So your child should be there for a year. But these programs, specifically these religious programs, 
they have no money, you know, and they're charging your parents several thousand dollars. I think for Lighthouse, it was something close to $3,000 a month. And there's many other programs that are even more than that, but Lighthouse, $3,000 a month. And they kind of need you to be there to pay their bills. So yes, I'm supposed to be there for a year, but there's no checklist of, oh, when your kid learns how to be responsible or learns how to do tackle, there's no like list of things that I can learn or do to say at the end of one year, my parents are good to take me home. So it's completely Mm. out of my control and entirely up to the staff to tell my parents that I'm simply ready. No idea what that means. Usually for most girls, they would determine that being ready means I need to get saved immediately. Almost every new girl would get saved within a week of being there um, because that is the only thing that you can see that you're like, okay, maybe this will make them think I'm a good person and I can go home and get out of this hellhole. Um, is if I get saved and I try to like be a Christian and, and maybe that'll help. And, and of course, that's something they're aiming for. They want you to get saved, but it's not the solution. It's not necessarily what's going to let you get out of there. Hmm. Uh, did you feel that there was a breakdown of or like a class system there where some girls definitely were treated much better and some were treated much worse? Or oh, yeah, you know, totally. was there anything you could do to earn favor there? Yeah, um, like getting saved was not going to get you to to go home, but a thousand percent, you're going to have a better time if you get saved. And I talk about this a lot on my TikTok, but they they had this world there and and Lighthouse is just, it's its own world. And if you watched all my videos, you would small instances of it, but it just operates differently. And they had the power over us while we were there to make our lives miserable. They could put us on super strict rules. They could simply pick on us and give us enough demerits to demerits are like sentences or lines for breaking rules. They could, they could pick on you or follow you around for every little rule that you broke enough to make your lines add up, which would make um, you get in detention, which would cause even, even further greater consequences. They really had the power to make your life miserable. When girls didn't get saved, they would often shame them in chapel. Preachers would get up there. And if a girl if his message was about like sinners or I don't know, just pick anything, he would find a way to apply it to whatever girl in the room hasn't been saved yet or, or isn't yeah. getting with the program. Like that's what they would say is if you didn't get saved and if you didn't God help you with your problems, then you weren't getting with the program and you were never going to go home. And, and more than that, they would just label you like the rebellious bad kid. And everyone else would think, oh, that person's a rebellious bad kid. Which is not true. We were all brainwashed into truly believing that. At some point, you would start to believe that this person is truly just a bad person. Like they should just get with the program, and it's not true. But they would just get embarrassed and humiliated. They would call. They would literally point at them and say their name and make them stand up and just humiliate them in chapel. Yeah, they, your life was going to be a lot easier if you got saved, for sure. Because they would just pick on you. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of all this. They would just pick on you so much. Every, everything that, oh, they, everything that would go bad in your life, they would be like, oh, like, for example, this one girl, um, her father died while she was there. And a staff member came up to her and was like, oh, God's trying to tell you something. That's why your dad died. Mm-hmm. And they would just make anything bad that happened in our lives and at home or whatever. It was because of your relationship or your lack of relationship with God. I can't tell you how many times they, even I at the time claimed to be a Christian because I was brainwashed and they would tell me like, no, you're not right with God. You're Mm -hmm. this or that. If you didn't 
don't even know how to describe it, honestly. They would just make the calls for you, tell you what your relationship with God was. So you mentioned making life easier or difficult. What was the day-to-day life? So waking up through end of day, what did a normal, I say the word normal, but normal day look like at Lighthouse? Yeah. So we woke up, I believe it was, I always forget this, it's either 5 or 6.30 a.m. that we wake up. And from wake up time, you have to get out of bed, like you have like 15 seconds to get out of bed. If you don't, you're going to get in trouble. And then you do your morning routine. So you do like your brush your teeth, brush your hair, wash your face type thing. And you get dressed for the day. Use the restroom, whatever you need to do. And then you get dressed for the day. And the clothes that they would put us in, excuse me, when I first saw them, I thought they were like Amish. So the morning I woke up my second day at Lighthouse, I thought it was an Amish place because the clothes that they would have us wear are just these gigantic jumpers. And if, if you've been raised in the independent fundamental Baptist community, you might have an idea of what these are, but just giant dress things are just hideous, giant potato sack type things. And you would wear whatever colored shirt applied to you underneath that. So you'd put that on and then you had about half hour to do all that. And then um, you would have to sit down and you would have to pray. And it didn't matter if you weren't a Christian, you still would have to close your eyes and pretend that you're praying. And you would have to do that for five minutes. And then if you wanted, you can do it for 10 minutes, but you had to do it for at least five minutes. And then you would have to read your Bible and do a, what we call it a daily walk, which is like a daily Bible study that we had to do every morning. Mm. Um, And that's what you would do in the morning. Then we would go to breakfast. After breakfast, we would do chores. So everyone had a job somewhere in the facility that they would go do. And after chores, we would have morning chapel. And morning chapel is just what you think. It's just a morning chapel service right before school. And then after school, we had PE and then lunch and then afternoon chapel. Afternoon chapel, same deal. It's just a different person preaching to you again. And then after afternoon chapel, you had shower time, dinner, and then night chapel. And so we went to chapel three times a day, every day, except for Sundays, ironically, which we went twice on Sundays. But yeah, I actually did the math one time and like in the four years that I was there, it's close to 4,000 church services that I went to. Just Hmm. crazy. The whole first year, you have to be thinking, I must be getting close or I have to be getting close. Or so once you're like two, three, four years in, at that point, do you just think I'm going to be here forever till I'm an adult? Like, what did you, what did you think was going to happen? That happens a lot sooner. So because of there, because there's no, and it's so funny that I did not actually recognize this while I was there. I didn't recognize like, oh, there's actually no checklist of things that I can do to be like, get me out of here. Um, I didn't recognize that till like, basically that whole stage of I'm going to be here forever. That has to happen way sooner or you're going to lose your mind. We couldn't have calendars there because they did not want us to count down days. And it didn't matter. You didn't want to because there's this terrible, like, soul-sucking feeling thinking, like, my friends are outside these walls having good times without me. Like, my family's having good times without me. Like, all the things that you're missing, you can't stop thinking about them. So you have to just, I learned, let it go. You have to, like, mentally say, my friends forget about me. They'll completely forget about me. I have to forget about them. And the only that's the only way you're going to stay sane if you're going to be there for more than a year is you just have to let go of counting the days. You have to let go of your friends, whatever's waiting for you. Assume that doesn't exist and just try to make life 
in that place not suck. That's the best thing you can do. You got to stop thinking about everything outside or else you will lose your mind. Was there ever a point you felt like it stopped sucking where you maybe hit a point where you were like, okay, I've just accepted this. Or did you feel like it was just constantly like this underlying, like, why am I here still? It was definitely, it definitely always sucked. Trying to make the most of it. Sure. Did I laugh sometimes or smile sometimes? Absolutely. There was times girls would make me laugh or the staff would do something quote unquote nice, which now you recognize more as Stockholm syndrome, (laughs) the way that they would push and pull you. But, but yeah, there was always an underlying tone of, I want to be out of here for everybody. Even if you were brainwashed, which everybody basically was after a certain amount of time, because they make you memorize. When you first arrive, you have to memorize like five pages um, that they've printed out with scripture verses that are like, um, you know, some of them will be on like salvation and some of them will be like on, on submission and other different kind of um, topics. And you'll have to memorize four pages of that when you get in. And then every single week, you've got to memorize a certain number of verses in addition to it, plus all your Bible studies. And after watching so many girls who get saved and get with the program, be treated better than you, it's your only option. You get saved, you buy into the program, you start believing in Jesus and like trying to make that work for you because the truth is your life is going to be better if you do that because the staff is going to treat you better and you'll really believe it. I digressed and then forgot the question. What was your question? No, I was just saying, was there ever a point? Because I know for some in some of these schools, they get to a point where they buy in so hard to the messages being taught to them three times a day that they end up being junior staff or they end up being group leaders or they end up, which like you said, feels very Stockholm syndrome-esque. No, it is. Even I, I don't remember if they asked me to stay on staff. I'm positive that I could have stayed on staff. I left when I was almost 18 years old, a couple, I want to say a month or two before my 18th birthday. And I actually came back like maybe nine months later just to visit. And Mm. I think at the time I wasn't, I, I had not yet registered the trauma I thought they were good-hearted people who treated me poorly sometimes, but they were good-hearted, and, and I was really still in their grip. And um, I came back, and I think a, a small part of me wanted to feel free. And that's because, and I say this all the time to other survivors, like the moment that I got out of Lighthouse for good, I really thought that I was going to feel um, free. I really thought that it was going to be like, fireworks and confetti and this is the moment you have your life back like it was going to be this amazing moment of bells and whistles when I finally walked out the door for the last time and it wasn't and I it was the saddest most disappointing moment of my young adult life when I walked out those doors and I realized all the terrible negativity and and self-worth problems and feeling like I was going to go to hell and all these terrible things were going with me like they were coming home with me And um, so when I came back to visit, when I was still brainwashed, I think I was looking for some kind of healing when I did that. And and I'm not sure I was very conscious, consciously um, planning that, but I think that's what that was. Because I didn't go to any church services when I came back. I just literally slept in the room that they allowed me to sleep in for three days. And that's pretty much all I did. It was just weird. It was a weird thing that I did. But, the, but you're right. A lot of people will stay on staff. And the reason that they stay on staff could be a couple of reasons. Some girls are there until they turn 18 years old and then they have no money and maybe their parents have completely disowned them, which happened all the time. 
Yeah. Um, and they, they don't have anywhere to go. And so they stay there and they, and it's easy for the staff to take them on because they've already bought into the way of life at Lighthouse. You don't have to surprise them by saying, hey, I'm going to need you to uh, put that girl on the ground, tackle her, and then sit on top of her for several hours. Like they are already like, okay, I can do that. Like it's already ingrained in their brain that that's an acceptable yeah. way to treat children. And you can pay them next to nothing for doing it. So it yeah. really works out for them because they don't have to risk anybody reporting their terrible practices when they just hire girls, hire girls on. I want, I want to hit on something you said earlier. You talked about not registering yet that what happened did have a negative impact. And this is something that I see a lot of. There was just a news article shared just in our local news Facebook page. And it was about the This Is Paris documentary. And a lot of people were coming out and saying, why didn't she say something right when she got out? Or why didn't she do this? And that's a common question in any abusive situation. Why didn't it bother you when it first happened? And so I guess if someone was to ask that question, they were to say, hey, how do you know it wasn't how it got you away from drugs? It got you away from bad influences. Is it, are you sure it's not just other bitter people that have spoken lies to you and made you bitter toward this place? Obviously, I'm asking that knowing from talking to people where this comes from. But I'm curious, what do you think it is that leads someone to wait a while to recognize that it's abusive? Yeah, so many reasons. Like there's so many things to tell you just based off what you said. First off, I'm going to start on why people don't recognize trauma. And there's a lot of different reasons. These are just my opinions, but there's a lot of different reasons that I think people don't recognize trauma. And I, I tell this to my TikTok people a lot is for kids, they a lot don't let anybody touch your body without your permission, right? But they're not taught to guard their emotional state or their psychological state. That's not something that we talk a lot with children about. So I think that's why it's really easy for survivors to come forward when they've been sexually abused or they've been physically abused otherwise. But it's a lot more difficult when kids are brainwashed. to be, And, and that's really the long-term trauma. That's the stuff that you don't realize until later on. When I start having nightmares, you're later, I'm like, oh, gosh, like, am I jacked from this? Like, I am. That's the stuff you don't realize till later on. So that's the first part that I think is a huge, huge piece of why people don't recognize trauma. Another thing, and this isn't true for all men, but oftentimes in religious institutions for boys, it's a very toxic environment. It's very toxic masculinity where, you know, sometimes the men can, they buy into those wives, be very submissive and be very manly. And there's no, they don't allow men to tap into their emotions or psychological states. So I find it's a common theme. I actually got this from my ex, who's a survivor of a boys institution. And he agrees with me. He's like, men, because they were in that state for so long, they really do not tap into anything other than physical abuse. Like they have a hard time acknowledging or talking about the psychological and emotional abuse they endure. Right. So there are two reasons that I think people have struggled to just even recognize that they've been abused. But in terms of actually sharing it once they know, it starts off with this. There's a huge stigma already on kids um, of the troubled teen industry. We're there because people don't believe us. We're told for years that we're manipulators and liars and that no one will believe us. So then when we get out, it's it's not even worth trying. It's very It's a very common argument or question that people get, oh, why didn't you say something sooner? Why are you saying something now, years later? Something women in the Me Too movement often have to yeah. battle against. But, and as a woman, I can understand that, but even women in the Me Too movement don't always have this extra layer of, oh, I was a troubled teen. And people um, will often accuse troubled teens, like you said, of just being bitter 
or angry that we had to be somewhere we didn't want to be. The staff that ran Lighthouse to this day, a couple months ago, will be like, we know you didn't, you had to be somewhere that you didn't want to be and just completely dismiss everything that they did to us. Even when I can present them with events that I know they occurred because they were there, the staff was there, like absolutely undeniable events. They just like to, they like to bury in that narrative that we're just angry kids, 27 years old. I've been out of there for nine years. I'm not doing a lawsuit. I'm not trying to get money. I'm just sharing my story. I have absolutely nothing to gain except the protection of children and the education of parents with troubled kids. Yeah. People, um, other reasons people don't talk about it. Um, when I first got out of my facility, I was super angry with my parents. People say, people get mad at me now for having a relationship with my parents. And I would hate them. I would never talk to them again. And I'm like, yeah, that's where I was when I first got out. I did hate them. I didn't really want to talk to them at all. So don't worry. I was in that place. And so when you say, why didn't you say anything? I was under the impression that my parents, probably because they were religious, and my parents did take a little bit more of a tough love approach to handling me. I thought that they approved the way that I had been treated at Lighthouse. Mm. So I, I didn't think there was really anything to talk about. I just hated them didn't want to talk about it. And I didn't talk about it with them for for years, probably like five or six years before I even like mentioned it to them. I just wanted another reason. I just wanted to move forward with my life and not look, not consider what had happened to me or think about it. Going to one of these institutions is a very hard thing to describe to people because of what I said, it's just this own world. There's all these rules that I like to share with people and people can comprehend them one by one. But to see the big picture of a thousand rules, I like to say death by a thousand cuts, see the big picture of like a thousand like crazy micromanaging rules and living in that environment for four years, it's really hard for people to comprehend. So you don't want to sit around and try to explain it to people all day. You just want to move forward. And that's another reason why people tell people for years, just Hmm. too impossible. It's an impossible task. Now, one of the things too, I just wanted to cover because I know, again, this is one of the things I saw in the comments and I see it whenever I put out content about this or see other people's content about this is especially from the you know older generations. So they tend to focus on, hey, I had corporal punishment. Hey, we had tough love. We had this, which we could unpack all the ways that kind of trauma got passed down to the current generation. But But I'm just curious, like, again, and this kind of piggybacks on the question I just asked, which is we look at these homes, we look at a a family that has no option or seemingly no option, and they, the kid is not listening. They won't, they won't hear what's being said. And they're sitting there with, what do I do? And the reaction of most parents in any disciplinary situation, when you get to that point is they just need like tough love. They need like really usually physical punishment. And what would you say, I think there is a time and a place for quote unquote tough love where you say, here's the real truth. If you keep doing this, this is going to happen or this bad thing. But can you talk a little bit about what quote unquote tough love looked like in these homes? What did the punishments actually look like? And why do you think that they were harmful, even if which this is a big if for a lot of these homes, even if it was well-intentioned on the part of the home. Sure, yeah. Um, so punishments at Lighthouse varied greatly, but they came very overwhelming, and I think that's where it becomes damaging. So one of the punishments that I think is actually the most damaging 
is, is uh, it's called dorm silence. That's what we call it at Lighthouse. And it just basically means that you can't talk. So those two hours a day we touched on earlier that you might be able to talk under all these special circumstances, they don't get those either. So they can never talk for any reason. Even if they have to pee, they have to raise their hand. Um, right. and a certain person has to call on them so they can use the restroom. And girls were left on dorm silence for years. So they were not allowed to talk for years. And in addition to that, we were not allowed to like have journals or diaries. So you're not communicating with anybody. You're not journaling your own thoughts to process your own information. And because this is a religious institution that does not believe in medication or like science, um, there is no therapy. So some trouble teen facilities are more secular and they include therapy um, and medication and have their own abuses with those things. But the abuse at Lighthouse was that there was no medication allowed and there was no therapy allowed. So you're not talking to anybody. You're not allowed to write um, anything um, down for yourself. And you're also not talking to like any therapist or, or like a professional or staff. Right. Um, so there's absolutely no way for you to be with your own thoughts. Um, yeah, I really personally struggled with this one because I was really into journaling and stuff like that when I was younger. Mm. And so I was put on like many rules where I couldn't have pen or paper at all, even to write like sentences if I got in trouble, um, because I would constantly try to write journaling and, and thoughts down and stuff. Um, but yeah, they would not let you have your own identity. It is the main issue. That's why when you come in and they take your clothes from you and they take you know everything from you and give you a new life, it, it, they break you down so they can build you back up in his image type deal. So it, it, it all, I think, comes back to the punishment of isolation, um, whether that's physical isolation in itself is the most traumatic, I think, punishment that mm. they have there, however it you know, played out. In addition, there was obviously physical punishments. If somebody, for example, um, wasn't following rules, they may end up getting bored. And I touched on this earlier, but getting bored is essentially when a staff member and or other students will come up They'll get you on the ground. They may do this by tackling you, tripping you, pushing you, pulling you, however they do it. They're going to get you on the ground. They're going to roll you onto your stomach, and then they're going to sit several people on top of your body, like your back and your legs and your arms. And no joke, they'll physically sit on top of you. I'm not saying like lean weight. They will literally sit on top of your body. And they'll do that for however long the staff member deems appropriate. And in most cases, your arms and legs and stuff go numb so you can't fight them and and when they get off you finally if it's one hour or three hours they'll actually spend some time rubbing your limbs to get the blood flow going again because you won't physically be able to pick yourself back up at that point so obviously that's another physical punishment i've seen that happen to girls for doing so much as refusing to stop picking their fingernails mm. so they would tell our parents in the documents that they actually gave to our parents it said they would only ever do that if we were a threat to ourselves or others which, you know, from my parents' perspective, I'm sure seems a little bit more tame. Okay, they might restrain right. them. You know, we'll place them on the floor and hold their arms until authorities arrive, is what the paper says. Never was that the case. You know, my parents were lied to. But I can see a little bit more how parents are lied to and, and they buy into those things themselves. Because after they've tried everything at home, um, ironically, it's, it's abuse is the only difference between what parents try at home and these facilities. So in addition to um, being floored, girls were also sleep deprived. I saw this happen to girls on numerous occasions. 
sometimes it would happen to them for um, not sleeping at night. So like at night, if you didn't lay down flat in your bed, you had to lay all the way down flat. You couldn't sit up and lean against the wall or anything crazy. If you did, you would be accused of like refusing to go to sleep. And so if they felt like you were refusing to go to sleep, or if you genuinely were refusing to go to sleep, they would sleep deprive you through various methods. Sometimes they would like floor you to the bed. So they would like pin you to the bed for some reason and try to force you to lay down flat. Sometimes they took girls out to the field and would run them or have them exercise until they were like exhausted enough to sleep. I've seen girls have to scrub the kitchen floor with a toothbrush all night long because they wouldn't sleep. And I I watched the same girl who did that once get floored the next morning in school because she fell asleep after they Mm. kept her up all night. And it's just strange that they would think, I I wish I could ask them now what they think they thought they're accomplishing in terms of fixing these children through these means of punishment, considering them, they all thought that, that these were spiritual problems. So uh, tough love to me is, is more like what you say is, is being honest with a child and talking about their true consequences of their behavior. But um, scrubbing the floor all night, making them run, flooring them, that's not tough love. You know, tough love um, is just abuse in, the, in those yeah. cases. Like, that's just abuse. But yeah. One one thing you talked about on one of your one of your TikToks, which I'll obviously link to here in the show notes so people can check it out. But one of the things you talked about too was like part of the environment during like meal times, and it's actually one of the things that like just freaks me out when I hear these stories. The physical stuff definitely, but the uh, almost all of these homes, which is again across all these different states, have the same programs but is the idea of having to complete a certain portion of food, having to eat whatever you didn't eat the day before with your next meal. And then it keeps compounding. And for me, I've always struggled to eat. Like I'll eat a half a plate of food, which I know it doesn't look like that, but I'll eat a half a plate of food and I'm done. I I, I really struggle to eat a ton of food. And like you mentioned, you were like 80 pounds. You probably weren't a crazy eater. And I remember you talking on your TikToks about having to eat so much to the point that you like actually threw up. And yeah, can you just talk about that kind of, because that's where I feel like, yes, I, th- I think it's easy to get almost stuck on, okay, how extreme was, what was the worst punishment? Like when people ask questions on TikTok, they go, what's the worst punishment? And I feel like the mealtime thing really speaks to just the environment of pressure in a really big way. Yeah. At Lighthouse, there was timed meals. So we had um, 15 minutes for breakfast, 25 minutes for lunch, and 15 minutes for dinner. So you had to eat all your food within that time. And you had to drink um, two or three cups of water, depending on what meal it was. And like you say, yeah, I was 80 pounds. No joke, 80 pounds. I've always been a very tiny human being. And it was a major problem for me there that I was so skinny because they thought I was um, anorexic or they thought I was bulimic, which is so strange because my parents literally never told them that I was any of those things. So I never have been. So they did not believe me when I started throwing up because I couldn't finish all the food. Like I was genuinely trying to finish the food and be a compliant student. So I would try to scarf and I wasn't the only one by any means who struggled with this. They served us so much food. And I think it's because it was donated. Most of their foods donated. And it like expires really fast. And don't get me wrong, they, fire, they fed us expired food too, but that's a different story. And a lot of people struggle with this, but they fed us a lot of food. And I started to throw up a lot. I think it was like both 
it was way too much food. And at some point I just mentally couldn't do it anymore. I was very broken and I would try to eat and I just would throw up. And fortunately, I'm not the type of person that just like immediately projectile vomits. I would get up and be like, wave to a staff member, like, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm going to throw up. And so I would do that. And the staff members would, would sit in this long row of tables at the front of the dining hall. So they could all sit there and overwatch all of the girls. And so I remember waving down this one staff member one day who I usually would wave down if I needed to throw up. And another staff member, in fact, the, the main guy, the main preacher, his wife, stopped us and said that I could not use the bathroom to throw up and that I was making myself throw up mentally. Um, That's what they believe, that I I was mentally just somehow making myself throw up for fun, I guess. And that if I was going to throw up, I would have to throw up on my plate. And at Lighthouse, you would sit at a table with yourself and three other girls. And so I would have to throw up in dead silence in this room of 40 people throw up on my plate um, right in front of these three girls who, who have to finish their food still. And that was the only way that like that could happen anymore after that point. And I would still throw up after meals sometimes because it was just like, I just barely made it. And they decided to say that I no longer could use the bathroom after meals and that I had to carry around. It was like a paint bucket like that you get from like home yeah. people. So I would have to carry around a paint bucket with my puke in it because they wouldn't let me use a restroom so it was just very like humiliating and embarrassing because you can't explain yourself to any of the other girls and it, you just look like this gross person. And yeah, that, that was definitely a really interesting eye-opening moment for me when I realized in this moment where I really wasn't trying to buck the system or, or break the rules, they just had no compassion for me or no, right. there was no individuality for any of the students. Nobody could have accommodations for them or we were just treated like cattle really we were everything we owned they referred to us as our initials sometimes many girls were referred to by their initials the time numbers like assigned numbers like we were very much treated like cattle and and everybody was on just like the same path and there was no exceptions for anyone who might need a little extra help it was a very compassionless um environment so you'd mentioned you were there on and off from 13 to 18? Yeah. And you had a break around 15? Yeah, it was somewhere in the middle. So I I arrived, I want to say September 10th, 2007. I only know that because I didn't get saved until 08. And then I left at like the end of 09. And then I was back home for six to nine months, roughly. I can't remember exactly, but around that, it wasn't even a year yet. And then my parents sent me back a second time. And then I was there until I graduated in 2011. What was the motivation for sending you back? Jesus didn't fix me the first time. I, I love my parents. They truly thought that whatever problem I had was a spiritual problem. So I think when I didn't really hold fast to religion when I came back, they thought, I think they were fooled by the brainwashing too. So I came back and I claimed to be a Christian and I actually held pretty conservative Christian values for probably a few months when I came back, but then it starts to fall off. You start to realize this is not who I am. I don't care about this. I don't believe about this. And I think they just see that as backsliding and, and they thought we got to send her back. She's because I was acting out again and getting into trouble again. And they thought, Oh, we'll send her back because it worked. They probably thought, ironically, I really screwed myself with the brainwashing thinking I was Christian 
because they probably thought it worked the first time. It just didn't stick. Send her back again yeah. and hopefully it sticks this time. It's probably what they thought. So you're 28 or 27? Yes. <laughs> okay, so 27 now. And I've taken on this role of advocacy and like talking about this and really sharing your story, which takes a lot of vulnerability and probably initially reopened a lot of old wounds, I can imagine. <laughs> so what's prompting you now to share your story and to really aggressively speak out about these places? Sure, yeah. I think right now, in fact, it was a few months before I linked up with the Breaking Code Silence movement, and now Paris Hilton's on board, and it's this crazy hot topic right now. But I started a few months before getting on board with them. I've just been on like a major healing journey in the last couple mm. of years. And, and maybe a huge part of it was to do with quarantine right now. When quarantine hit again, it was a really interesting phenomenon for a lot of kids who've been in these facilities. When your state says, oh, you can't go outside, you have to stay inside and, and only go out for when it feels like this lockdown mentality. I'm very familiar with it, as are mm. many other survivors. And it triggered a lot of things in, in a lot of us. And for me, it's been incredibly difficult. It has reopened so much trauma that I was not... I knew I when, when things were shutting down again, I was like, I bet you I'll get anxiety really bad again. Because um, I go through periods where my anxiety is really terrible. Um, and quarantine and, and the lockdown trigger has really brought it back for me. And I think while it brought it back for me, it also gave me time to process a lot of it. Mm. And I try to be super honest and, and straightforward. And, and I, I hold myself to a high standard of, of like, Let's, let's like talk about why you feel this way or why you reacted this way, even if it like makes you sound dumb or like even the brainwashing. I think that's a topic that people don't um, talk about too much. They acknowledge it, but they don't really talk about their experience and say, I thought I was a Christian. I thought I was going to be a missionary because that's an embarrassing thing to be because people associate being brainwashed um, with being weak mentally when no. the truth is you're a child, you're put in an impossible situation and this is the result. There's no shame in it. It's not us who should feel the shame. It's these people who do this to children. Mm. So I, I try to put myself in this position where I look at it really honestly and, and, and try, to, try to really share what I've learned as I ask myself these questions. People ask me questions all day. And I try to take some time and really think about genuine answers and not just say stuff to say stuff, um, which is probably why my TikToks will seem a lot clearer than this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I usually take some time and really just think out what is like the real answer to this question. So anyways, I think just feeling uh, my own trauma and needing to, to find healing for a lot of parts of my experience that I haven't acknowledged before. Um, I think that's really opened my eyes um, to the need of, of this industry or shutting down this industry and, and saving these kids because I'm 27 and I'm still dealing with it. And I'm like, these kids have no idea how important yeah. it is um, that they get proper treatment, proper counseling or proper short-term psychiatric treatment with the, the purpose of getting them back in the home as quickly as humanly possible. But those are the routes that need to be taken, not residential treatment. Like I've come to the conclusion after talking to a lot of like medical professionals and, and, and child development people, and I've come to the conclusion that all residential treatment and it's, is inherently traumatic. It's a traumatic experience to be kidnapped. It's even just traumatic to say, hey, my parents gave up on me and dropped me off yeah. somewhere for someone else to deal with. That, that in itself is a traumatic right. thing for a child. So 
it's been like a major learning journey and I'm just sharing with everybody as I go along. Yeah. What's the response been to that? Obviously, it seems like there's a lot of people that are interested in what you have to say and interested in hearing your story. But what's been the response? I know I know if it's anything like what I do with this show, there's probably hundreds of messages you're getting off <laughs> like off the public sphere that you're getting private messages and questions. What's been the yeah. response for you doing these TikToks? I get a lot of other survivors touching base with me, people that uh, want to share their story, people who aren't there yet, that they don't want to share their story yet. They're not ready to talk about it, but they're just grateful that someone is speaking out and someone is validating what they've been thinking. I also get a ton of parents um, reaching out to me, asking me what they should do with their children, which I'm always like, I'm not a medical professional, but this is what the ones that I talk to say. And I actually now finally have a like library of resources for parents of troubled teens who need options outside of residential treatment on my TikTok which is so great because now I can actually point them to that. But yeah, every day somebody's my kid is a terror. And they're always saying things like, I've tried everything. I have no other options. And it's almost like they want me to validate their decision. They're usually pretty decided at that point that they want to send their kid to residential treatment. And and it's sad because I, I understand. I know from my parents' pain and my parents' love for me, how some of these parents feel but it's just not the way. Sometimes you just bite the bullet and keep fighting for your kid and and keep fighting through all the hard times with your kid. And yeah, sorry, digress. Yeah, a lot of parents reach out and ask me for help. And then a lot of survivors reach out. And that's the gist of it. I don't really have anybody who reaches out to be mean or, or nasty. Everyone's been pretty cool. I think they learn from what I have to share. And I think they sense that I am genuine. And it's worked out, man, I think. It's awesome. I remember the first person who told me that they were going to make sure they never sent their kid to residential treatment and saying that they had previously considered it and now that they were never going to do it. I remember the first person who told me that and I was like, that makes literally all of this worth it. I think I have 50 something thousand followers on TikTok now and I'm like, that's incredible. I can't believe that's insane. But it's man, just every time a parent tells me they're not going to send their kid to residential treatment or somebody tells me I'm going to tell my sister or my brother or my uncle or like whoever they know in their family that somebody is sent somewhere. It's just pops, man. It's just the best possible outcome. Yeah. That's awesome. Obviously you mentioned the goal of seeing these places shut down, which I think is a shared goal. Like I think we, all of us who have heard these stories and I'm sitting here as an outsider looking into this world and getting to meet so many incredible people that have been affected by these places and obviously that's a huge goal, but I, I'm just curious as we wrap up here, if you could say, I know every day you're sharing messages with survivors, with parents and things like that. If you could say one message that you could have every survivor of one of these homes here, what would you want them to know? Mm. That's an important thing to talk It's tough and it's a sad thing because you asked me that and there's not much you can tell these kids. There's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can do to stop being abused. So how can I prepare them for the lifelong journey of dealing with uh, anxiety or depression and trust issues and self, all these issues that they're going to have, like there's nothing I can say to prepare them or to stop the abuse from happening to them. So I'm not sure what I would tell them, man. And actually, I lost the ones. 
I literally couldn't tell you. I literally couldn't tell you. I'm like, there's literally nothing you can tell them. That's the saddest part of everything is like, when the abuse is over, you can say something. I'm like, we're still being abused. What do you say? Hang on. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to give you like this great send off moment, but that's, that's the gravity of the situation that we're in right now. That's, that's the importance of why we need to shut down this industry. There's nothing these kids can do to stop what's coming. That's the gravity of it. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. And I'm seeing this time and again, and I mean, I've talked with people off the show who have literally, like, you can just sense the anxiety, the frustration, the fear, the depression. Like, you can, you know, I've, 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 I did an interview with someone from one of these homes where it just, you could just tell how damaged they were from that experience. And I'm sure you've had that tenfold with the people you've talked to. What can people do to help shut these places down? That, that might be that. a that might be a good question to to That's end on here, question. so we can have a, a happy send off. But yes. but what can people do? I sit here as someone who I don't have a personal connection, and I'm sitting here. And up until doing this podcast in January, I think it was in maybe March that I first got connected with uh, Amanda, mm-hmm. and under like started understanding like, oh, there's something going on here. Yeah. But I sit here and um, go like, I feel like now that I know I have this responsibility to like help <laughs> and yeah. I feel like other people do too, but it's hard to know where to start or what to do. Sure. That's great. I love that. I love hearing people who want to help it. That's probably the single most important thing that, that I hear from, from people who are not survivors, but just supporters. It, I, it means so much more it's so validating for people to be like i want to help or that's not right the way that you were treated like people don't understand how important it is to say that to survivors because for years we were told that we deserved what what was happening to us or that we that infliction upon us in some way so it's so validating for people to say that's not okay and we want to help and the ways that you can help there's a couple different ways that and i always have to credit them with breaking code silence um, came up with this little these little points to help. And I always like to share them with people. So there's a couple things you can do. First thing is to investigate. If you want to help shut down some of these places, you have to investigate with us. And I, I highly, if you want to get involved with investigating, join the Breaking Code Silence group. There's an investigation team and they look at the facilities that are open and they try to find evidence of abuse and report it to proper authorities and work with authorities in, in the areas of these facilities. So that's a great part, great area you can help. Another uh, point is to help with legislation. We try to educate politicians on what's happening in these schools, on the lack of oversight, the lack of education, even the staff members of these places. There was people who worked at Lighthouse who didn't have high school diplomas. Like bringing this to the politicians, educating them on what's happening and the lack of oversight in these facilities is huge. So trying to, trying to make big changes in, in the law is the second part. And you can do that by signing petitions. You can do that by, by working with the legislative team at Breaking Code Silence. They are already in contact with some senators in certain states. And you can write letters to those senators. You can call them. We just try to hound them and try to get them to hear us. And, and that's a huge part of it. And a third way you can help is more what I do or my primary um, thing, which is media. You can share other survivors' content. You can, If you're a survivor, you can share your own story if you're comfortable with it. But just social media, sharing stuff, stuff, commenting on stuff, 
um, sharing it with your family or friends. If you can just share it with one person who is considering residential treatment, you could literally save somebody's kid from a lifetime of trauma. It's just as important. And all three of those departments work together. They all need each other. They're all equally important. So if you can do literally any of those things, it's it's incredibly helpful um, for the kids that are still in this industry. That's awesome. And I'm going to keep sharing what you're doing. And I know that there's going to be a lot of people who you already have a huge audience of people watching your stuff. And, but I know there's people that listen to the show that maybe weren't aware of you that are going to definitely check out what you're sharing. Yeah, no, that's so awesome. And again, everybody just definitely be sure to check out the links in the show notes. I'll have links to your TikTok where people can check out uh, what you're doing, your Instagram, things like that. So people can um, see what you're doing. My thing with the show is once you something, I feel like you have some responsibility to have a part in doing something about it. And that doesn't mean everybody's going to devote their entire life to this. But if you can share a post, if you can drop a comment, mention something to someone on a phone call that can make all the difference. And like Hannah said, it can make all the difference for one child's life, which I think is worth it. But but yeah, thanks for coming on and for, for sharing your story. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at preacher boys doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.